0: On this podcast, we talk about the new and exciting display here at the Heritage Museum. On
1: Kiski Chronicle, we feature interesting stories and people who shape our local history. The mission of the Allegheny-Kiski Valley Historical Society and Heritage Museum is to interpret, preserve, and celebrate the cultural, industrial, and ethnic heritage of the Allegheny and Kiskemenetis River Valleys in southwestern Pennsylvania.
0: My name is Sean Isaacs, and I am the head volunteer here at the Historical Society, and here with me is Jamie Stoner, the curator. Hi, Hi. Jamie. Hi, Sean. <laughs> so, tell me about this this display.
1: Well, we're excited to have a new space in the museum that's open to the public for the first time. This room was one that was used for storage previously. When we decided that we needed to remodel it, we decided to go with an open display space instead, and it covers our collection of radios, washing machines, and sewing machines.
0: Since the museum used to be an American Legion, what was this room previous?
1: Well, like you mentioned, our museum was an American Legion, built in 1931, and this was actually the working kitchen of the American Legion. And we even incorporated some of the original cabinets that were in the kitchen that they used as part of the display mechanism for the exhibit.
0: What were some of the, the fun things or interesting things that you had to go through while renovating the space to prepare it for artifacts?
1: Well, one of the important things that we had to go through was making it, of course, visually appealing, which involves painting it and things like that. However, a lot of the scents and chemicals that kind of give that paint smell are really dangerous to artifacts. So it was really important that we kept a close eye on the air quality of the room to make sure when it was actually safe to incorporate artifacts with it. It's probably one of the biggest challenges that we faced with a room and one of the most time-consuming ones as well. This
0: room seemed like it had quite a few almost complications due to the fact that it was a kitchen. Why did you choose this room in particular as exhibit space as compared to another room?
1: Honestly, it was kind of just a very open idea. We were going to remodel a two-storage space But the unfortunate thing about the storage space, of course, is the public can't enjoy that part of our collection. It's there for researching, and we preserve it for the future, but it's not something the everyday public gets to see. So we decided instead of incorporating it as storage space again, that we could open it up so that everyone could enjoy the items that are housed in there anytime the museum's open.
0: What are some of the the big steps that you had to go through in order to prepare this room?
1: Of course, like I mentioned, we did have to remodel, you know, the usual things that you think of when you're remodeling anything, the ceiling, the floor, the walls. Of course, being a museum, we had to keep a close eye on the temperature and the climate control and what kind of seasonal fluctuations that this room goes through and how we need to compensate for those, whether that's watching the heating or the air conditioning, watching the moisture and humidity level, things like that, which is something more unique to a museum location. And then, of course, the most important thing is deciding what we want to actually display in a new exhibit space. You know, it's one thing to have a new display case or something like that that we're just putting smaller things out on. But with this, we decided to go with a lot of our larger collections and larger items and deciding what would work in the space and what would continue to tell the story that we're trying to tell here.
0: What did you end up choosing to go inside this display?
1: We ended up going with three sort of segments in this room. We have our radios and record players. We also have our evolution of the washing machine. And we also included our sewing machine collection.
0: How did you decide on these items?
1: Well, took a couple things into consideration. You know, what, what is the public interested in seeing? And what can we offer that other museums in the area don't currently have on display? As well as what ties into the story that we tell here. This room is an offshoot of our early 1900s village. And even though it doesn't fall into the particular building or housing thing, these still, all three of those things tell a story of the everyday life that people in the AK Valley experienced.
0: Let's start off with the radios here. You said everything has a story to tell. Why are radios so important to the Alakiski Valley?
1: Radios are important for several reasons. You start with sort of the historical aspect, the kind of boring date aspect. November 2nd in 1920, you have the first public radio station, KDKA, which was produced by Westinghouse, a Pittsburgh company. So radios are fundamental to the Pittsburgh area. They're one of the huge industries that popped up in the early to mid-1900s. Everyone has a story to tell with the radios. Whether you were listening to the reports from the attack on Pearl Harbor, whether you were listening to what was going on in Vietnam at the time, no matter what, everyone has that story with the radio being central to the family environment, to the house. It's how they kept up on news. It's how they listened to entertainment. It's how they got together as families to spend time together for entertainment purposes. It was the TV of the early 1900s.
0: Now, with the washing machines, it's quite obvious why these pertain to the daily life and belong in our you know, living section of our Historical Society's Heritage Museum. But what makes this collection special?
1: I think the most important thing with the washing machine collection that we have is it really shows the changes that they went through. Our earliest washing machine is the Rapid Washer, which doesn't look that different from a plunger, except that it has a metallic base. And this is a washing machine that it's almost a struggle to call it a machine. You know, it's hand-powered From there, you move up to the next sort of level, and these would be the cradle or the rocking washing machines. Again, still not very animated. The agitation is still very human produced. And as these continue to change, and we have examples of many different types from the late 1800s through the mid-1900s. You see the switching to the gear mechanisms, to the electrical. You see the incorporation of the motor. You also see the crossover point where a motor can be incorporated or where one cannot be, so that it fits both the areas that had electricity as well as ones that don't. And then from there, you move fully on to the full metal washing machines, really the predecessors of the ones that we have today. And it's that change, it's that series of invention, that series of ingenuity that you really get the feel for when you're standing in person and you're looking at all these different pieces of technology and how they build off of each other, how they change, and how they're even similar to each other. In addition to that, you also get a very interesting feel for something that you don't normally think about. When you're dealing with technology, we always think about the progression of technology. It always marches forward. It always keeps going. You know, like I said, you start with the washing machine that's not much more than just something on a stick to an elaborate motorized mechanism machine. But with washing machines and most household goods, but I really feel like washing machines illustrate this the best. You move from this wooden simplistic machine to a fairly advanced machine. And then you take a leap back again to the wooden machines, to the simplistic ones, around the time of the 1930s. One of the pieces that we have that I'm really glad to include in the exhibit is actually a national washing board. And they call it a victory wood washing board. The reason for this is because during the 30s and into the 40s, you have the Great Depression. We need to start making things cheaper again. And then coming out of the Great Depression, of course, there's World War II. And now metal has to be reserved for the war effort. So if your washing machine dies, or you're maybe starting a new home, maybe you just, you know, moved off on your own, you got married, and you need a washing machine, you don't have the luxury of purchasing a metal one. So you have to go back to the sort of technology of yesterday and reproduce the wooden washing machines that are capable of being used in this time of scarce resources. So you see a very interesting progression forward, a take back, and then a continued progression forward at the end of World War II.
0: I've helped you a lot with various displays around the museum, and I know one of the key things we have to do when we are making new displays is research on the various artifacts. Tell me, what was probably the most frustrating thing that you came face forward to while researching for this exhibit?
1: That lovely story I just told you on the washing machines. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely that one. Um, Having machines that their patents were created in the late 1800s, one of ours is patented 1896, and then having those reissued again in the 1930s, having the same companies with the same model numbers producing in two separate centuries, and two, two completely different time periods, two completely different points in history, made it incredibly challenging on identifying if a lot of the pieces were late 1800s, early 1900s, or actually 1930s. And of course, we still have, we have one sewing machine that's quite the challenge because of course it has no name and no model number on it. So I think that's definitely a large future project that'll be coming up on working on identifying it.
0: Now with the sewing machines, what time period would you say we have sewing machines ranging from? And maybe, you know, what are some of the the possible brands that we might have?
1: For the sewing machines, just like everything else in the room, we try to keep it in roughly the same range. It ranges from about 1880 to about 1930. The brands include National, Stag Electric, New Home, and Standard. Most of them are non motorized sewing machines, although a few of them are. And some of them are table sewing machines, other ones are standalone machines. The most interesting thing about them, even if you're not into sewing machine history or even sewing at all, is the level of artwork that they put on the sewing machines to make them visually appealing in that time period. It's very different than the plain ones you see today.
0: Now, you were mentioning non electric sewing machines. For those who might not have ever seen one, can you explain how one might
1: work? Of course. Most of them are pedal-based, although we do have one that is hand-cranked. And the motion of either the pedal or the crank is going to actually be what moves the needle up and down. So the faster that you pedal, the faster that the needle goes. It actually works very similar to the ones today. You still have the pedal with the electricity, and pushing on the pedal powers the machine. The only difference is you have to keep pushing the pedal down to keep the gears rotating.
0: Starting with the radios, what do you think is your favorite radio on display?
1: I'm going to say my favorite radio on display isn't actually a radio. I'm gonna say it's actually one of the Victrolas. We have a Edison Victrola that does still function, but the really fascinating thing on it, it actually has a cell plate in it of where it was sold. And it was sold in Windsor Music Company in Toronto, which ties it in very locally. And that's something very interesting to have is actually who sold the Victrola as well. And personally, the Victrolas have always been one of my favorite things that we have in this museum. Nothing sounds quite the same like the music produced by one. Of course, like most record players, they work by having the record, the needle, but they're non-electric. They use a hand crank to store up spring energy and then rotate the record. And the other part that's always very fascinating, is the volume control on them. Instead of having a volume knob or something that you can turn up or down, you have to either open or close the doors, more or less, to control the volume coming out of the machine.
0: So let's now move on to the washing machine. What's, what's your favorite washing machine that's on display?
1: We have an American Ringer. We actually have two. Both are electric, both are motorized. However, One does not have any of its gear casings on, which allows you to fully see the ingenuity that went into the hearts of these machines and how they were developed and how they functioned at a mechanical level. And I think everyone's been very excited to show everyone else, once they see it, the way the gear mechanisms work, the way it's able to actually not only rotate the agitator, but raise it up and lower it again based on how the teeth move in the gears and It's it's kind of always incredible when you look at a piece of technology like that, that's, you know, 100 years old and it still works and it still functions.
0: I I can say, for one, watching it and seeing it myself, it's very mesmerizing to see how smooth the motion is. Like you said, of a machine that's, you know, over 100 years old, that is still moving effortlessly. Now, with the with the sewing machines, which one would you say is your favorite?
1: My favorite one is actually the standard. And that's because of its storage mechanism. I think anyone that's had a sewing machine and had one that's built into a table knows how frustrating it is because you have like the lid that flips over. You have to physically lower it down into the table and pick it back up. They're heavy. It's kind of awkward. Um, Whereas the standard sewing machine developed it so that as soon as you lift the lid, the gear mechanisms inside the table itself actually lift the sewing machine automatically out of the table for you. And I think that's a wonderful piece of technology that I kind of wish they still kept around a little longer.
0: <laughs> Seems quite handy. Yeah. Especially since now you don't have that sewing machine taking up space on either above or below really the the table.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very, very interesting system that they have going for it. And I mean, the other thing to remember with a lot of these pieces that still kind of surprises me is... One of our washers, uh, the Easy Washer, was produced in the 1920s. And the particular model we have was actually still used up until the mid-1980s and actually still functions today. Of course, we don't use it to wash laundry anymore, but it's fascinating the longevity of these pieces. Well, you've had a tour of the exhibit. What was your favorite piece <laughs> in the exhibit since you asked me three times?
0: <laughs> well, I, I have to agree with your your comment before about the, the washing machine with the, the open gear casing. I thought that was absolutely fascinating to watch. The other one that always fascinates me is, again, another washer. I feel like the washers are very unique in many ways. And this particular washer is an older Maytag owned by a nice old lady here in Trenum whose husband donated it to us. And she had been using it up until just a couple of years ago. And when we, I know I was one of them to go pick it up. And he had just detached it from the water supply that that morning when we came to pick it up. So to me, it was absolutely fascinating that this washer from, you know, the the 60s was still being used up until this day, almost like the easy washer you were talking about earlier.
1: I think the best part of this exhibit is just the ingenuity of it is the progress of change and the progress of development. And we've also incorporated other smaller artifacts that sort of go along with these themes. One I actually wanna to describe to you is our hem gauge, which sort of looks like a range gauge. I actually just got asked today if it is a rain gauge. It is a roller supported on a wooden block and has a little glass jar of chalk attached to it that you can set at any level on the roller. And the glass jar of chalk has a cord with a pump attached to it so that if you were home alone in needed to gauge how long your hem should be you could set the height to what inch was appropriate and stand in front of this apparatus and squeeze the pump and it would spray chalk onto your hem and you would slowly turn around while you continued to spray the chalk and hopefully get an even line along your skirt so that you could then cut it sew it hem it as needed fascinating
0: so jamie if somebody wants to come by and visit this new display what do they have to do
1: The Heritage Museum is open every Wednesday and Saturday, 11 till 3, and they can stop in at any time during then. It's part of our permanent exhibit. It's going to be on display for a very long time, hopefully. Otherwise, if they do need to, they can also make a special appointment. As long as we have about a week's notice, we can open up for appointments. And, you know, that helps people, especially visiting out of town, you know, make make scheduling fit a little bit easier. How
0: big is the exhibit space and how long do you think it would take somebody to go through it?
1: I'd recommend at least 20 minutes, maybe longer. Again, it depends on how interested you are in the pieces. If you want to tour the whole museum, though, I usually recommend at least a couple hours. And I definitely say, especially since the 1900s village been recently redone, I think it'd be worth spending a little extra time to see more.
0: With this new exhibit, is there any extra cost to visiting and viewing the display?
1: No, it is included in regular admission to the Heritage Museum. And remember, members always visit free, as well as any veterans or active military. Otherwise, we ask for a $5 donation.
0: Well, thank you very much, Jamie, for sharing with us this wonderful story of our new exhibit here at the Heritage Museum.
1: Thanks, Sean. I was very glad to talk about our new exhibit with you.
0: Today our guest has been Jamie Stoner, curator of the Allegheny-Kiskey Valley Heritage Museum. Visit us at 224 East 7th Avenue, Trinom, PA. We are open Wednesdays and Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. You can also give us a call at 724-224-7666. Visit us online at akvhs.org and be sure to join us on Facebook and learn more about our exhibits and events. Thanks for joining us on Alekiski Chronicle, the podcast of the Allegheny-Kiski Valley Historical Society and Heritage Museum. I'm Sean Isaacs. See you next time.
1: You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network, a nonprofit profit project, the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative.